Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Josh, the founder and chairman of QuantHub, and we discuss how he and his father built a medical center in the jungle of Costa Rica, the importance of having a data literate frontline workforce, and how QuantHub is helping companies upskill their workforce in data science. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. And our first conversation, I really love what you were doing with Quant Hub. And so I definitely want to hear more about that. But I want to start out with like your origin story. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let me uh, sit on the psychologist's couch for a second here. Let's go back to the, uh, we'll call it the 90s. Um, so uh, I'm from Tuscaloosa, Alabama originally, and uh, early on went on a missions trip in my church. I was about 13 years old. Uh, went to Guatemala, absolutely loved it. Uh, convinced my parents to actually let me go back. And uh, they, they sort of threw me a curveball and they said, well, we'll help you get there, but we're going to drive you down. So we bought a Jeep Cherokee and drove through Mexico down into Guatemala, spent the whole summer wandering around. And uh, I was really hooked after that. Uh, so the next year, the summer I turned 15, um, I moved to Guatemala to go to language school and studied Spanish, you know, probably eight hours a day. And then, the, you know, Internet cafes were really just coming online. Everybody was starting turning coffee shops into uh, Internet cafes where you could rent computers by the hour. And for someone in eight hours of Spanish language a day, I was looking for somebody that spoke English to hang out with. And so, of course, that was sort of the hub in Central and South America where you can meet uh, folks from other countries. And so I spent a lot of time there. And noticed that they were really using essentially legal pads to manage their business, clock people in, clock people out. And so I had been sort of hacking in high school, playing around with basic, which sort of led into visual basic. And I offered to write them some software to manage their internet cafe. And honestly, I really just did it on a whim. Uh, I was sort of trading for free internet. And then one day the owner came in laughing, saying, hey, the, the internet cafe down the street tried to steal your software. And I thought, well, that you know, was pretty stupid because uh, I hard-coded it for this cafe. There's no way that's going to go anywhere. But it made me realize, you know, maybe this has some market viability. And so uh, long story short, I dropped out of high school, moved to Latin America, w- went back and forth quite a bit and rewrote the software to, um, to really take it to market. So I ended up traveling up and down from Mexico, Mexico to Panama, about eight countries there that I would sell the software in each of those countries. And sort of go back and forth between doing medical and dental relief work with different groups from churches to Rotary to Lions clubs. Uh, at that point, I was translating. I was also starting to lead some teams, getting some medicine donated internationally, and really was focusing both on the nonprofit side uh, as well as the business side. And so I would kind of spend one week in one business and one week in the other and, and did that for about 10 years. Were, you, were your parents pretty supportive of this? You sounded like, what age were you when you were doing this internet cafe software? Um, so I wrote the first version, uh, two, three and a half inch floppy disks. Uh, I think I was 15 and yeah, I dropped out of, I dropped out of high school. I ended up, uh, the university of Alabama, uh, let me enter early, um, through, through doing well in testing and some other stuff. So ended up spending about seven years at Alabama, just a couple of classes, uh, at a time, sort of checking the box to get through an undergraduate management degree. And the the computer software business led into internet consulting, ended up selling that business in 2000, ended up starting a digital marketing web design firm, ran that for about seven years, sold that in 2006, 2007 era. Uh, so they were, you know, they were slightly nervous at first. I, I didn't die after a couple of trips and became pretty fluent in Spanish, had a lot of contacts, ended up just getting really comfortable going back and forth. And so um, actually at one point I'd so it's sort of a rabbit trail. I won't take us too far down, but uh, someone had donated 250 acres of land in the northern Costa Rican rainforest uh, to us to start some medical facilities. Uh, no power, no running water. My nearest internet connection was an hour horseback ride away. I would connect to a government satellite phone and use a sort of a over-the-air bald modem. If you remember those things, it made all the screeching sounds. So it was out in the middle of nowhere. Called my father one summer. I think I was 17 and asked him if he would. He was a carpenter. So I asked him if he would come down and help me build a medical facility. So uh, he he took two months off work, dropped what he was doing. And two weeks later, we were out in the jungle building a medical facility, chopping down trees with a chainsaw, made a sort of a makeshift mill and uh, sort of everything was built on site. 
so yeah, they were, they were, they were pretty supportive, I guess, I guess you should say. <laughs> that is so cool. I've got to be like, I've never heard this type of story before. I love it. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it, it was an important, I would say an important part of uh, my development in the sense that, um, I really, um, I, I've always sort of seen sort of two paths. One is sort of the development relief path, helping people serving others. And then the other is really, uh, the business side, the entrepreneurial side. And it's all about, uh, solving problems and from the internet cafe business to, the digital marketing firm into later strategy wise and what we're doing now with quant hub um it was really about just understanding business problems and challenges and and looking for solutions and whether you're troubleshooting a renewable solar system in the middle of nowhere in the jungle or whether you're writing code in python uh you're essentially you're essentially finding problems and and creating solutions so what is so quant hub's current project what does that do yeah so sort of sort of fast forward towards the latter part of my career so 2007 saw the web design business. My wife's Japanese. We spent about three years uh, living in Japan. We met at the University of Alabama and we spent three years in Japan, uh, started and sold another business there, came back to the US, did my MBA at Emory. And so this was, uh, I did the, the weekend executive MBA so I could actually drive over while working. And I was working in a, a dental organization, uh, one of the larger dental practices in the Southeast, clinics all over the state. And hopefully the, 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 you know, this is your audience, the CTOs will appreciate sort of this era in terms of the change and really the development of the data science uh, industry, if you will. But I realized that the data science in some form has been around, you know, we'll call it thousands of years since people using stars to predict where to go. Um, and then you've got folks that have war stories from the 60s and 70s, punch cards and so forth. But where I would say there's really sort of a turning point in the industry was in 2010, 2011, 2012, a couple of key things were happening. One, our internet speeds were really starting to, to hit a critical uh, a mass in terms of what you can send over pipes. You've also got the, the creation of data is increasing at an exponential pace. And so at one point, you know, we were saying more data was created in the last two years than the rest of the history of the world. Modern ex, you know, expectations are that's going to quadruple in the next couple, you know, year or two. So just the explosion of data is there. You've got that coming from sensors, but more importantly, from smartphones. So you got those internet speeds. And then a real critical turning point was uh, the democratization of servers. And so servers went from millions of dollars hiring six-figure people to manage that to, hey, any Joe Schmo can go rent an AWS server by the minute and run really big models on those servers. And so you see the, the convergence of those in that 2010, 11, 12 era is really where I would say data science was really starting to bubble up into something really compelling. Uh, so... I was learning how to do regression models and basic prediction models in our MBA program. And then in the dental clinics, I discovered, hey, we've got all this practice management software. I can run a debug tool, write SQL queries and extract 150,000 rows of patient data and start looking for problems to solve and things like that. So it was sort of this, this business case real world with all of this, um, this new data that I was getting on how to build predictive models and stats and that sort of thing. And so... What I so so I was working in a nonprofit clinic, and we found that over twenty five percent of our appointments were not kept because these were Medicaid appointments. People were not paying out of pocket for them. Major problem. So you overbook your appointment slot, then people get mad when they have to wait in line and they don't show up next time, and it becomes a spiraling problem. So what I did was I said, well, let's extract all this patient data and see if we can build predictive models to predict who's going to show up for their appointment and who who won't show up. Got a lot of signal uh, basically that hey, we could predict this. And a lot of things you wouldn't have thought about, like the closer they lived to a clinic, the, the more likely they were to miss an appointment. And so our best hypothesis was if you live 30 minutes away, you're sort of planning your day around that appointment. If it's down the street, then you're not really putting as much priority on it. Anyway, lots of things like that. But I discovered early in that process, we can really start using data in new ways um, that businesses I don't really think have used before. So we started strategy-wise in 2013. Really, I would say as a consulting firm but with sort of this data charge, but very quickly into it, one year, two year in, every company we're working with is saying, what you're doing is really interesting, but let me tell you what's keeping me up at night. It's we have all this data. What do we do with it? Uh, so some of our early clients were Toshiba, Samsung. We did a lot of work for a Southern Company, Alabama Power, and it really morphed into, can you help me leverage my data to achieve some sort of competitive advantage? And so what we saw is... I'll say over the last 10 years, there are a couple of sort of major 
we'll, we'll call them trends for lack of a better word. You've got Hadoop and everybody's everybody wants big data. And what we saw is everybody wanted Hadoop, whether they actually needed Hadoop or not. It's just the CTO down the street needs Hadoop, so I'm, I must need it as well, or we've got budget for it. It's, and so, and then for a while you get dashboards. Everybody's got to have a dashboard. And now our current phase, uh, AI and machine learning, right? Everybody's like, give me machine learning. Uh, here's my budget. Go give me some machine learning. And obviously there's more sophisticated approaches than, than, than that to it, but there was very much, and there has been over the last couple of years, this sense that here's this new technology. Oh yeah, I forgot blockchain. We'll throw that yeah. in there as well. <laughs> so there's this new technology. Surely it's going to you know, be a big deal. So we should be investing in it. And so what StrategyWise did, so StrategyWise was a data science and AI consulting firm for about seven years. And what we did really, we found our niche was in advising larger corporates, so Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies on how to build data and AI strategy. And the reason that I believe that what we did resonated with our clients was we would say, don't let the, the technology tail wag the dog. Let us find what your business case is and let us help you build a data science strategy around that particular, um, whatever those business cases are. Uh, so a couple of quick examples. One of our clients was one of the largest fast food companies in the country. And we worked for them on a, a number of different projects. But one of the things that was really important to them was caring for their for their guests, for their customers, creating a meaningful experience, a positive customer experience. And the more you know about someone, the more you know someone's story, the more you can create a positive experience for them. When you think about the data creation that's occurring through mobile apps and rewards and things like that, if you just have a credit card, you have a credit card hash, you can't really identify the individual or if they're paying with, with cash. But again, this is really any industry. If you can get them to use a rewards program, you can start to begin to, to monitor those patterns, routines, preferences, and behaviors and create a more positive experience. Classic business strategy, it's around differentiation, creating that positive uh, guest experience. On the other side, where it's whether it's utilities or, or anywhere else, there are all these different ways that, that you can build competitive advantage through leveraging data and so a lot of what we would do is, is say, ignore the technology for a minute. How are you competing in the marketplace? Is this a differentiation strategy? Is it a low-call strategy, a niche-dominant strategy? We would start with the strategy and, and then say, well, let me tell you about the di different technologies that are available out there or the ones that you might want to invest in and really help lead them to um, the best possible series of projects that they should undertake uh, along the way. So to answer your question about QuantHub, so one of the, I would say, biggest challenges we found in this process is we, um, we've made a series of hires that we questioned after the fact. And I thought, you know, this guy's got a PhD from an Ivy League school. This person came from a top four consulting firm and they're not working out. What's the deal? And, you know, Mark Twain once said, uh, a strong opinion adds 10 points to your IQ. And, you know, I, I, I've thought about that a lot because if you talk to someone who's just really opinionated or something, sometimes you want to give them more credit uh, than they necessarily deserve. And I think one of the things that we were struggling with is that resumes experience was not always correlated with their skill sets as a data scientist. And so ultimately what we did is we said, we've got to build better vetting tools. And then particularly over the last 10 years, data science is a sexy new job. You get all this stuff. Everybody's putting all of these keywords in their resumes. So we said, let's build a really good vetting and training platform so that as we're going to grow and scale our organization, we can uh, vet these data scientists and know that we're getting good hires, not just because of their, their pedigree, if you will. So we mapped the taxonomy of data science into about 75 different skill sets. And if you think about all of the different areas of going down sort of a, uh, you know, a tree of, of predictive modeling on one end, you've got data engineering, data hygiene, you've got writing SQL queries, you've got statistical accuracy and all of that. So we mapped this whole taxonomy of data science out and we built an adaptive test that said, essentially the, the candidate will self-assess or, or, or first of all, you describe your position. What, what are the positions? What, what are the skills that I need the candidate for this position to, to possess? And then our test builds a, uh, our system builds a test around that. It gets easier or harder as the candidate goes to the test. So it's an a adaptive um, response-based uh, test and it builds a confidence interval around their level of expertise. And then the next step is we will give them a business case. So we give them a problem, a data set, they download a solution 
and then um, or they excuse me, they download a data set, upload a solution. We can see how they're responding to real world problems. And then that third level is a code editor where they can actually edit code in the website, in the platform, and we can see what their coding skills are. So that really gave us our first our first version of Quant Hub was really around that that vetting and assessment. We used it internally for ourselves, uh, sent thousands of candidates through it. Before long, StrategyWise clients were asking about it. They were like, hey, can we use your tool? So that's when we raised our initial seed capital, uh, hired a CEO that was a CTO of a, a software company, uh, put him in charge of the company, and we spun it off as a separate product. And really to get it to market the first round, we worked with one of the top, we'll call them top three consulting firms in the world as a beta customer and said over the next year, you know, we'll give you good pricing on this if you'll meet with us on a weekly basis and help us build the perfect product for you. So that went well. They've since rolled that out globally. We've gotten really good response from that. And so sort of version two, and I'll sort of wrap up this, this monologue here, but sort of version two of this was realizing that data literacy is becoming incredibly important to organizations. So I talked earlier about all these different predictive models and things like that. You can't build a model to predict let's call it uh, machine failure or predictive maintenance or predict customer churn if you don't have good data. You can have the world's best data scientists, but if you have garbage data coming in, you can't build a good model. And that starts really with your frontline employees. We, organizations more and more and more need data literate employees to be able to build competitive advantage as we move into an economy of the future. So if you think about all the places that machine learning and data science are really coming uh, taking over, uh, you need a data skilled workforce uh, to be able to get there. And so our our real real focus right now is on data literacy. We're working with a number of large organizations, rolling out this data literacy program that essentially for frontline for everyone in the organization, not just data scientists, we deliver data literacy training in the flow of work. And it's usually five, 10 minute daily bite size increments of training that are based on that taxonomy that I talked about, about understanding all the different areas of uh, the importance of, uh, of data in an organization. Yeah, that didn't register with me the first time we talked. And so um, I think that, that I get it now. I did not pick up on, like, I know you said it, I'm listening like in my head back to, you definitely said data literacy, literacy training, but the way you just described it, it clicked for me. So tell me, let me, let me check myself real quick. So let's say I'm a technology company. I've got 200 employees and maybe 30 of those are like support people, right? They're answering support tickets. And the, but then I also have, you know, data scientists at my company. I have software engineers and everything like that. So this data literacy training would go out to like the support people so they could start picking up and understanding these terms that are being thrown around the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you a couple of practical examples. So I mentioned earlier the predicting customer appointment keeping behavior. The reason that failed the first time I tried it is I, I couldn't get any signal in the noise. And I thought there's got to be something here. What's going on? So I said, well, let me put the computer down for a minute. Let me walk up to the front desk. And I'm just going to watch how front desk office, you know, just the folks working the phones, the dental hygienists, how are they using our practice management software when they track a failed appointment? And what I discovered was that some of the um, the, the staff Whenever someone would cancel or fail an appointment, they would mark it as a failed appointment. And that would go into the system. I'd see that on the back end. Some people were simply dragging that appointment over to the side, over to a Saturday. They'd call them, reschedule, and drag it back in the calendar. And so it wasn't marking that as a failed appointment. So what was happening is, is I was getting bad data that looked like good data. And if those frontline employees knew, hey, there's actually someone using your data to build a model that drives the future of the company or some major component, they probably would have changed their behaviors. Not a lot, but just enough to understand, hey, this data that's coming in right here is very valuable to us. You know, think about uh, salespeople putting uh, information into a CRM tool like Salesforce, understanding that this isn't just so that my boss can kind of keep an eye on me, but the information that I put in here may predict a churn model in the future or help us drive some sort of uh, important product feature. Uh, another example would be um, I had a utility come to me and say, we want to build a predictive maintenance model that will tell us when to change gaskets and we'll call it an oil pump, right? And so, okay, great. We can probably do that. How often does it fail? You got to have a lot of instances of this failing to be able to predict future failures. 
Well, ultimately what it comes down to is they're not actually putting the receipts for the repair parts when they when they replace it, they're not putting those in their ERP system. Instead, they're in some filing cabinet somewhere at best. And so we don't have any records of that historical event occurring. So we just, the, the project ended there. We could not build a predictive model. If they understood the value of data and were capturing that in a meaningful way, we could then do that. But what's more important is you want those people that are taking those receipts and throwing them away, the you want them to be aware of the value of data and saying, hey, this is, I know we always do it this way, but we should stop raising their hand, stop the assembly line. Hey, we need to be capturing this data because what if we did X, Y, Z? And some of the smartest data scientists that I've met in the field are not in the IT department, but they're wearing hard hats and they're in the factories or they're on the front line. And if you sit there and you ask them, you know, what are your pain points? They give you great ideas around, you know, what we really ought to be. I know your project's over here, but let me just show you this over here. And that sort of thing is really data literacy is helping them understand data is an asset to our company. Data can help drive our competitive advantage in the future. And then, of course, it also goes to the boardroom, just like building good charts and graphs, just creating good, you know, being able to storytell with data. Uh, those are also parts of data literacy. How are you delivering this training? So our goal there is to deliver it in the flow of work. Um, what we found is that um, just giving somebody 12 chapters of a book or a series of videos where they just attempt to go do this nights and weekends really doesn't work. So our goal is just to deliver this in as, as streamlined of a fashion as possible. So we have a website, you can use that, but also we deliver it um, through, um, we've got a, a release in the next week or two where it'll be coming out through Teams. So you can actually interact with our bot in Microsoft Teams and we'll add Slack on as well. And uh, so someone comes in, they take about a 15 minute test that maps out their skill sets, what they're strong and weak in uh, on the data science side. If they want to progress to the next level, we chart what are the skills that you need to have. And so we build a content recommended recommender engine behind the scenes for each individual employee. And then what they will do is they log in and they essentially are given either a video or an article or something like that to read on a regular basis. We do lots of quizzing in between just to identify, are they actually learning from these materials? That helps us refine the recommendations for the individual as well as uh, the system as a whole. It helps us really understand what materials work well and what don't. So, so really our goal there is as much as possible to deliver that content in the flow of work and then customize it for the organization. So for example, Southern Company is a client. And so we're, we're going to be customizing a lot of the content around utility related data literacy. So that might, you know, one of our uh, clients is a Blue Cross Blue Shield. So what does this look like in the insurance industry? So creating relevance around the content is really important. And then also we were talking this morning about our product pipeline and in the coming months, we'll be um, revealing an in-browser spreadsheet tool. So you can actually play around with some of the things that you're learning. So the goal is really to get it back into folks' hands so they can apply what they're learning uh, right there on the spot. Have you ever thought about uh, you know, like Glassdoor, like big job site. I yeah. was, it would be kind of cool. I don't know if they do assessments or anything like that, but it would be kind of cool if you could integrate. Obviously, the the data science part is really great, but it's super niche, right? Like it's very a very specific job type uh, or job category. But then the data literacy that you could have like a generalized data literacy training and people could take like an assessment in that. And then that would make them... Be, like it would be kind of cool if you could have like a quant hub certification or something and if i'm applying for jobs on Glassdoor, i could take one of these skill tests and then run around with it and it shows that i'm a data literate person no i think that's a great idea and, and really our whole system we've built some apis for a couple different partners but just the ability to connect uh, into applicant tracking systems uh, we've looked at you know do you apply it in freelance platforms I think there, there's a, it, we're still a young company. We've got a lot of opportunity ahead of us, but I think those integrations are, are certainly a, a great idea. Yeah. With so many different paths, that's one of the struggles with a startup, right? You, there's so many possibilities on how to make it work. And really it's about narrowing it down to the one or two that'll generate cash flow immediately <laughs> so yeah. you can grow. What, yeah. What's the one or two things today that, that you've narrowed it down to that's generating cash flow? Yeah, so the, the vetting uh, is certainly one of those. So for any data science team that is hiring um, our product, we really have scaled it down to a pretty affordable version for smaller companies. 
all the way up to enterprise uh, wide, like I said, you know, testing tens of thousands of people a year with single sign-on and all that sort of stuff. So we have both of those. Um, those are generating well. And then on the data literacy side, we have um, that essentially it's a scaling price model for organizations. So we, we signed up a nonprofit yesterday for 10 licenses. Uh, we also signed up a, a larger corporation a few months ago for 500 licenses. And they've come back and said, now we're thinking a thousand. So um, both of those sides of the so those are sort of the core products, but what's really interesting to me is benchmarking. So if I'm testing my candidates, how are my how are my candidates testing, say, compared to the rest of the world? Are we are we, are we even recruiting well? Or you know, on the data literacy side, how are my employees uh, progressing through this process? Can we actually come back? And so so I think there's some opportunities, and this is more of back to your comment about you know entrepreneurial try this, try this, try this. Just the ability to report out and say you know what are um, what are companies hiring for these days? Like, what are co- what are companies testing for? And then take those skill sets. And we've got a lot of universities that we have sort of budding partnerships with. The professors want to know, you know, what are your corporate partners? What are they testing for? So that we can put that into our curriculum. Hey, can we go ahead and send our students through that? And so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities there. And I, I found we uh, one of the things that was really good at strategy wise about using Quant Hub is I could send a large a pool of candidates through the system. And I could sort by the highest scoring candidates and only interview the top five or 10 candidates for culture. And I'll, I knew if these people are virtually acing this data science exam, they've got the technical chops. Now we can move on to some of the cultural things. Whereas a lot of times you would get someone who would have all the right stuff on their resume, but when they come in, they just, they don't really know their content. And it may take you a couple of interviews, you know, a couple of cycles, you're pulling a senior data scientist off of a job. Now you're pulling two hours of his time to come vet somebody. Um, so that was really uh, valuable as well. What's been the the winning go-to-market strategy for getting these customers? Yeah, it's, it's a little different. Um, I would say on the data literacy side, one of the challenges is, if, is you, if you think about the world, some organizations totally get it. They understand if we're going to be competitive into the future, we have to transform. Data literacy is important. So some of our clients um, that we've signed up, I would say with relative ease, and that's almost never the case with a corporate client, but with relative ease, if you will, is those that have some sort of organization-wide initiative that said, we have to upskill our workforce. And if you look, you know, PwC did a study that showed about 77% of uh, the workforce want to completely retrain and improve their future employability. This is, I mean, it's a really big, and also if you look at, like I think it was uh, McKinsey did a study comparing high-performing organizations to underperforming organizations and the high-performing, and it was in the 60%, 63, 64% of executives had data literacy, um, you know, high data skills versus 43% uh, of those at underperforming companies. So, so a huge gap in terms of the data literacy. So back to your original question, companies that know we've got to get our employee upskilled and data literate are relatively easy to sell. Uh, the ones that are hard to sell are the ones that don't really, that wolf is not what's biting them now. Like they have some other corporate prerogative or initiative or they haven't or they haven't identified data literacy as, as a core challenge. And so the challenge there is essentially you have to educate the market. And as a small startup, it's expensive and t- you know time consuming to try and educate the market. I want to switch gears a little bit because I'm curious about you as a person. So sound it out when you were, you know, younger, you started, you were doing this like, like missionary type of work. Now, a lot of the conversation has been about like around quant hub. Is this just what you're do, doing like during your professional hours? Are you still contributing uh, forward like as a person, uh, like non quant hub stuff? Yeah. So, um, so strategy wise, I think I mentioned earlier, um, we sold it to a, a company, um, uh, called eSource out of Boulder. They're backed by private equity and they serve the utility space. Um, and so I'm just now completing sort of a tour of duty, if you will, with them of helping transition and that go really smoothly. Great company, um, but they're really focused on you know a specific area. And I'm more of an entrepreneur, um, which is uh, you know uh, pretty obvious, I, w- I would imagine. Um, so, so sold strategy-wise, I'm chair of the board of Quant Hub. I don't actually have a um, sort of day-to-day job, if you will. I'm more of a coach, spin the flywheel, helping on sales, helping on connection, innovation, 
Um, I've, you know, written some of the early code test questions, all these sorts of things all the way from end to end. So I understand it. So um, I'm spending a decent amount of my time there. I have a handful of other investments as an angel investor. And so I was going to get more involved in those. And um, Alabama Capital Network approached me a few months ago about taking over as their CEO. And they're an economic development organization that essentially connects investors with entrepreneurs in the state of Alabama. And they wanted to raise a uh, venture capital fund. And so um, to me, it was interesting because it was a play of both investing and helping coach and upskill and, and really advance these entrepreneurial ventures, which is a lot of what I've been doing anyway. And then also the economic development play of building a startup community in Birmingham and the rest of Alabama. Um, so that will be where I hang my hat. And so I'm going to continue again involved uh, very heavily in Quant Hub and some of these other areas. In terms of other involvement, uh, I'm, a, I'm very involved in our Birmingham Rotary Club. Uh, we have the largest Rotary Club in the world, uh, over 600 members. So I've rotated on, on and off the board there and a handful of other local nonprofits. And so really getting involved uh, from that area. And uh, I've got three girls. So I've promised my wife I would not take on any more board roles in, in the near future. Uh, so that's kind of yeah, my day in a nutshell. Now, I've heard people talk about Rotary Clubs a hundred times. I've never asked, tell me what's a Rotary Club? So Rotary International has o- over a million members around the world. Uh, it was founded in uh, early, I'm going to call it 1900s. And it's a community um, organization that is focused on doing good in the community. Our slogan is service above self. It is, it is, a, it is not a faith-based organization in the sense that it's a values-based organization. Each Rotary Club is going to be a little bit different. Ours is you'll have uh, a pretty broad spectrum of the community. Ours is a bit unique in that most of the members are CEOs of larger corporations. We've had senators, congressmen, and CEOs of of sort of the larger Birmingham area uh, organizations in our club. So it's truly a, a, a bird of a different feather. You'll see Rotary Clubs that are 20 or 30 people that do pancake breakfasts, you know, once a month. They're usually raising funds for some particular cause. In our case, um, so we meet once a week, we have a different speaker come in. One of the great things about our club is the level of speakers is pretty, I mean, it's pretty nice. Um, we've had the CEO of Target of Coca-Cola come speak. We've had uh, different folks like Marco Rubio, Miss America. It's a really good speakers gallery, if you will, once a week. Uh, we also have a project uh, in Sri Lanka around doing mammograms and we're globally rotaries focused on ending polio. So we've got a big partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, working to, we're almost there uh, eradicating polio. So meet together, talks, do civic activities. We built a rotary trail, turn like a railroad track into a nice trail uh, in our city. And so we maintain that. Um, and then a lot of just one-off projects throughout the year. That's pretty cool. We have a uh, rails to trail, uh, trails to rails, pro- uh, rails to trails project. Rails to trail, in ours. Yeah. yeah. They basically took all the railroads and like paved over them and a mm-hmm. lot of bikers and runners use it. And it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I, I should know the, the details in this better, but I think there are some easements related to those railroad tracks in different States where the state gets to keep it if it's used for transportation but they lose it if it goes to some other purpose. And so technically moving from a railroad track to a running track still checks that box of transportation. And so there's some some interesting loopholes and support and things like that communities can get by actually turning a railroad track into um, uh, a walk-in track of some sort. Yeah, I learned uh, that they, when they were laying the fiber for the internet, they were using the railroad tracks and like paying licensing fees to be able to use those existing tracks and dig up and bury like internet. So yeah. they, that's how they were s- still making money. Even after railroads stopped being like super popular for tra- <laughs> transportation, they were making money off the internet licensing fees. Well, and it's, it, you know, for cities looking to retrofit or add quality of life, railroad tracks are really sort of a hidden gem because they really are perfect sort of uh, size location. They sort of transverse the city in a lot of cases. So it's been, if you look at Birmingham, the economic impact of the Rotary Trail has been pretty substantial because the four blocks that it covers was heavily blighted. And since then, you've got luxury uh, condos going in. You've got all sorts of, you know, ice cream shop, coffee shop type stuff. So it's a really neat uh, economic development play at the same time. I mean, don't say ice cream too loud. My my kids hear that. They're going to go crazy. <laughs> so you have these three girls, right? And they see you 
giving back, being a part of society, being in the Rotary Club, you know, running companies. How is how has this impacted their development? Are they talking about it with you? Are they asking how they can get involved? Yeah, so my girls are, are 14, 12, and 8. And so they're split out high school, middle school, and uh, elementary school. Um, so this last year, I guess you have to say this last year, notwithstanding, one of the things that was important to us is really to expose them to this and, and get them involved. And so um, we actually were planning to go to Costa Rica this spring break um, to take them back to the medical facility that I set up years and years ago, uh, almost 20 years now, or yeah, 20 years ago, and really expose them to that. And uh, that was unfortunate that that didn't get to, uh, we didn't get to do that. But that my goal is to start taking them. So I've gone with our Rotary Club to Sri Lanka, and really just in some of the the local stuff, the community stuff of, you know, like cleaning, you know, when we have the Rotary Trail cleanup days and stuff like that. So trying to get them involved in that. And uh, uh, I, I remain uh, hopeful that we're planting DNA and seeds that will will stay with them. You mentioned earlier that you're an angel investor. You've made some investments. Uh, what type of companies? So one of them is Preferred Medical Systems out of Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, Preferred Medical is uh, a distributor vendor of uh, ultrasound equipment. So primary in the women, primarily in the women's healthcare market. Um, we do some point of care medicine, sports medicine, but pr- mostly like if you're getting going to the OB to get your your um, your baby image, that sort of stuff. But really more on less of that and more on the healthcare side. So uh, they, when we started, they were actually a client of mine at StrategyWise and had the opportunity to invest later. When we started, they had a five state territory for Samsung. Uh, so Samsung GE was sort of the king of ultrasound market. Samsung bought a Korean company in 2008, 10-ish in that neighborhood and brought all of their imaging quality to the market. And so they, they rebuilt this company, Medicine, into the Samsung uh, ultrasound business. Really been doing a fantastic job making a really great machine. Uh, we helped them, with, when they were our client, we helped them grow from five states to 10 states. Um, now they're in uh, 28 states. So if you buy a Samsung ultrasound in over half of the US, you're gonna be buying it um, from Preferred Medical if it's a new uh, device. And so they've just got a really good business model. got a really good CEO, great sales team, and just see a lot of opportunity there. Uh, COVID was a little bit of a hard year in terms of hospitals not buying new equipment, stuff like that. But ever since then, uh, the last two quarters have just, at this this Q1 is the best quarter in the history of the company. Uh, so we're really, um, really, uh, things are going well there. So, and I've helped them in a number of areas of marketing, of pricing, warranties for used, because a lot of it goes back to that data. I mean, it's like, how do you how do you warranty a used piece of equipment? Well, if we're servicing that equipment, we're capturing that data. I can tell you how often that's going to break in the future. So if we sell another one and we want to predict the failure rate, we know what the parts cost, what it costs to get service out there, and so we can actually price that. You know, that doesn't even sound like it is data science, but it isn't. But it's all so intermingled in the sense of um, how you use data. And I'll give you one more quick example. Like in marketing, so we started using dynamic telephone numbers very early on. So you can go on your website and use a company like CallRail is a great company where they'll give you like a, a basket of phone numbers and everyone who visits your website gets a different toll-free number at the top of the website. And so if they pick up the phone and call, it goes to your switchboard, but we now can track that back to your Google search history, what pages you went to on the website. So we can create this end-to-end data trail in our CRM system of where did we source a client from. You can use those same toll-free numbers in your postcard, you know, whatever kind of direct mail you do, all that sort of stuff. That's pretty cool. That's what CallRail does? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I did not get paid for that endorsement. <laughs> that Was that one of the companies you invested in or no? It's just a great company. They, yeah. <laughs> they uh, they had strategies on their website in the first couple of years because we were using them using them so much they used us as one of their like very first case studies so if they had if they had approached me I certainly certainly would have invested <laughs> you're a very entrepreneurial you understand how to grow these businesses not only grow them but sell them and exit and raise capital for them the entire gamut right i want to know what makes a great sales team oh man that has been i would say one of my greater challenges is on building great sales teams so honestly you, you would have, a, I would much rather hear your answer uh, than mine on this. Um, but I've, I'm sure folks have heard you uh, opine to some degree. I, you know, I think you, you have to divide it sort of in your, your B2C and your B2B space. Um, I think those are, are going to be two different animals, if you will. Um, and then you look at the um, data science has been, 
historically complex if you're selling solutions versus selling uh, finite products. And so um, for, you know, I, I would say this, it really goes back to building relationships and who have relationships. And I think one of the areas where I've failed is hiring a salesperson that does not have connections in the industry. I think whatever industry you're selling to, if you can, if you can hire someone who really has been there, who has the bona fides, uh, who used to work at company X that they're selling to now. And before that, they worked at company Y. And you look at their LinkedIn contacts and they've got people in all the different businesses you're selling in. You know, I think that's probably one of the biggest factors. I think building a really good CRM tool that you use and you live by and you really hold people to, uh, to metrics is really good. And then, of course, having a really, uh, maybe another area for potential failure is, is not having a good relationship between sales and marketing. So if you've got sort of CYA going on in both cases, so ideally a good marketing team is, is generating those leads um, and sending those to the sales team. Um, and then the sales team is saying, hey, these are good leads. These are not good leads. And, you know, a dysfunctional organization, I've seen it where the two don't work really well hand in hand. And so I think you've got to have a, a good synchronization there. Yeah, I'm no expert. I've done it once. <laughs> well, I've done it well once. Yep. I tried. It took me 14 people to find the one person who was like me as an engineer, but in sales. He was that good. And when you, uh, say, when you say 14, you mean like you, you hired and fired 14 people oh, yeah. or you interviewed? No, no, I hired and fired. I hired, onboarded, lived with and fired, like not live with and like live with, had them on the team uh, and fired 14 people before I found the person who like taught me how to do it. What, what did you, what was it? Did, did you figure out what the difference was? Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple things that'll get you. So let's, uh, there's a million ways to do it, but I'll tell you like how it happened, how it rolled out for me. So the first big problem was like understanding where the pressure was in the market. You said that earlier too, right? What is the bait that's going to catch the person that's going to buy what you're selling or is interested in the problem you're solving and things like that. So figuring that out required a lot of testing. So outbound B2B email, trying different email content, talking to people, just kind of honing it in. So that that was something that I'd say like the founder kind of has to do, right? Kind of figure that out, make those first, have those first 50 meetings or whatever to figure out what the trend is and where you're going to be. Then once you can get meetings predictably, right? So the first mistake I was making was thinking that a salesperson would be able to figure out how to get me like predictable meetings, right? Very rarely can you take a salesperson, from my experience, uh, <laughs> it didn't work 14 times in a row, can you take a salesperson and say, go get me meetings so we can sell this product? I, you know, I know this is useful because I've talked to these few people. You have to actually have like the infrastructure in place where the, the system's actually sending the emails out and the meetings are getting booked and like you know how to book. So once you've got a flow, like a stream of incoming meetings, then you can go get the salesperson. And that's the key with that salesperson is the first thing I learned is and um, some people call themselves salespeople and they're not salespeople, <laughs> just like your data scientist problem, right? They're like yep. account managers or something. And maybe they get a commission for like an upsell or across, but you have to get that, that salesperson who like eats, sleeps and breathes. They like love sales. They'll tell you they love sales. They're a great person to talk to. Like you like them instantly, right? And then that they that they care and that they're hungry, that they're like hungry. They they want, you know, freedom, they want financial freedom, they they want to make a bunch of money, they're excited. Cause that, you know, excitement will definitely transfer to your customers. So we found that person. Um, and then we gave the leads to that person. So they're not really doing we want to get that person just on the phone all the time or on a Zoom call all the time with the customer. And then that person's typically like not, it's hard to find a really organized person that's very charismatic. It's like typically I find people are either like very organized and less charismatic or very charismatic and less organized. So you have to find the balance. They have to be charismatic enough to for you to like to make a sale, but they also have to be organized enough to take notes and send proposals, right? So they have to take notes because we they have to ask these certain questions every time so we can sort of feel feel out what's going on in the customer world. And then they have to be able to be organized to follow up and send proposals. Obviously, we use you know software that helps with that, make that easier. And so that's where I've spent a lot of my time is relieving pressure from these people who uh, are making the sales through 
advancements in technology and improvements in our technology systems. So now I've got the leads coming in, the good people who are organized enough to do the job and like really great to be around talking to the customers. And then of course, then you have like delivery and uh, organization. Like we use this tool called ClickUp for delivery. So a customer comes in and they get a certain number of tasks that happens. And uh, so that would be, that would be the thing that I've like the way, the way that we do it, finding those people. Do you use any, um, use any uh, testing like um, whether it's uh, Colby or StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs disc, any sort of those personality psychographic? Have you played around with any of those? I've seen them. I think they're really cool, especially as we get to like this next stage. I, I really liked how they could, I saw a couple of them could analyze the team and what the culture is like and then help you find people that fit into that. So I've seen a couple different flavors of it. But right now, what we've done is we spend some time with them beforehand and then we fire fast. So, mm. you know, you can, t it's really hard to tell pre pre hiring, like you can get a good idea, but what it comes down to it is, can they perform? And in sales, it's very clear, very easy to understand. I mean, that if anything, the first salespeople I hired, I let them stay on way too long. And that's when uh, the guys over at Florida funders, counseled me a little bit as an entrepreneur as you see your bank account balance draining all of a sudden you get really <laughs> you get you really you really care about getting the right people in so so not to put you on the spot here but this is probably valuable for folks listening when you say too fat when you fire fast versus way too long can you put can you put some more sort of order of magnitude on that when you are you talking you know weeks months yeah what would you say is way too fast and what or you know way too long versus fast so for sales, it's clear because we have a known model. So we know it takes three months to ramp a salesperson to quota. Mm -hmm. So we we it's tracked. We know it. They're either doing it or they're not. We know how many people they have to contact a day. We know how many meetings they have to have a month. Um, we've got about, I think, five or six salespeople. And since the second salesperson, it's those numbers have like held steady. So we just keep plugging mm -hmm. in more salespeople. We know that if they reach out to 100 and uh, 150 people a day that they get about 70 meetings a month and they close about $30,000, $40,000 in business. But it takes three months for them to ramp to that. They usually make their sale, their first sale sometime in their second month, they make one or two sales maybe in their third month. And by the fourth month, they, they should be hitting their quota. Hmm. I love it. Yep. That's, what, that's, that's all I've learned. That is it. <laughs> Sorry. Good. <laughs> Sorry, we got way off topic. Probably. Sorry, I was I was interviewing you there. <laughs> what else did we want to cover as we start to wrap up here? Um, did we we want to definitely? Oh, you said earlier. I don't want to let this go. We were talking about the data literacy. And you said there was a website. What's the website? How can people learn more about the data literacy program? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, quanthub.com uh, is the website. We've got a uh, great blog, lots of articles, lots of stats. So if, if folks are wanting to win over others in their company. We've covered a lot of material there. Um, I'm easy to get to, Jones at quanthub.com. If folks want to reach out to me, we're happy to talk about um, everybody's situation. Uh, we're we're in a really, I would say we're in a good state as a company in the sense that we've been battle-tested by some really large enterprises. And so we've had to go through those battles to prove that we're scalable, we can deliver at enterprise level, but we're also still a rapidly growing company. So we're very tightly listening to our customer feedback. So folks that sign up really get um, sort of that white glove experience, if you will, of talking not to three layers of abstraction before it gets to the dev team. They're actually talking in many cases to the dev team. Um, so really, um, you know, I, I would say quanthub.com covers most of that material and I yeah, appreciate your asking. Yeah. Is there any quanthub certifications yet? You know, a lot of people have encouraged us to do that and we've talked about it. Um, I, I don't think it would be a, a very hard lift to do that. Um, I, I think when you look at all of the things that we could do with the resources that we have right now, um, it's just sort of fallen fallen on the list uh, behind some other features that we're you know that we're pretty excited about. And a lot of what we're doing is sort of an iceberg in the sense that we really want to get the the education and the training right. We really want people to learn well, to be engaged, 
not just to study something, but to truly internalize it. And so a lot of what we're doing, the learning theory behind that is kind of, it's not really visible at the surface, but below that again, uh, with the adaptive testing process, with the constant um, tracking of what are they learning, what are they not, and then pulling out these uh, different dashboards to show um, the, and the employers where their, their, their team is going. Um, some of those features are, um, we're really, I would say we're investing very heavily in, uh, but I'd love to circle back someday to the the um, certification for sure. Yeah, I think there's there's a better business model in what you just described. I mean, the certification sounds nice. It's like, it sounds cool, but if I were taking a product to market, I mean, I know there's a lot of CTOs out there and they have thousands of people out their organization and they have no concept of where they sit versus the benchmarking thing you mentioned is something everybody wants to know, right? I, where are my 50 or 500 data scientists in relation to the rest of the market? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll say some of the things that we're aspiring for that are really important to us is the going back to the data. So one of the um, one of the great quotes um, we've got on our website was actually from someone at HP that was talking about uh, Michael Pollack was talking about just how um, our assessments correlate to how a candidate performs in the interview and how they actually perform on the job. So more quotes like that, we can get the better where we can show their 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 score here correlates to how long they're going to be in the organization, how successful they're going to be. We believe we can get those. Now we've got our our data vetting products is a little bit. Um, it's you know we've had a couple more cycles with it, so we've got more long term data. The data literacy is a relatively new product again really formally launching about three or four months ago. So it's it's super early. The early, um, you know, our, one of our clients went, they, they tested with 40 people, had really strong results, and then they upgraded to a 500 user license. So, so they saw it internally, but what we wanna do is capture that across our customer base and show companies that are going through this data literacy program we want to we want to tie that back to employee performance and employee success. Uh, unfortunately, that's going to take us another a year or two, if you will, of just capturing that data to show where folks go. We believe it's in the data. We believe it's there. But as true data scientists, we're capturing all that data, watching it, and then using that to iterate on our product itself and to make sure that we're constantly um, offering the best possible training we can. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.